This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the second show in our series on white racism in Maine, and it's part two of my conversation with anthropologist and social work student Natasha Wilson. Last week, Natasha told the story of how she came to Maine from New Orleans after the murder of two of her brothers. She described experiences of overt racism and hostility in both Maine and in Iowa, where she went to graduate school. Toward the end of our conversation last week, we were talking about how the very idea of races among humans is a fallacy. And she said this thing that really struck me, that the idea of whiteness was something that was invented by a group of white men centuries ago as a way to justify colonization and slavery. Before that, the Greek language, for instance, didn't even have a word for race. So we pick up there today by talking about how when we question the concept of race, it affects our sense of who we are. Here's part two of my conversation with Natasha Wilson. This is why I think I wanted to understand identity formation and the role that race had on identity formation. Because if on the one hand, it is a social construct, there's nothing inherent about it. For instance, my five-year-old son, I just, you know, he was, he came home from kindergarten. He was telling the story that one of his friends told him, and it featured a black lady in the story. And I, I, I remember being like, I haven't talked to my son about race yet. Like he doesn't know anything about it. I just, I, we haven't figured out how to talk to him about it because part of me doesn't want to reify the construct. And yet part of me wants to prepare him for the world that he's going to enter as a child of color. Um, and I asked him, I said, Josh, do you know what a, a black lady is? And he said, no. Right. And I said, do you know what a white lady is? He said, no. Right. So it's not inherent. No, we teach we teach it. Exactly. So, but for a lot of people, because it's become the basis of our identity, if you suddenly say, this is not, you're not white or you're not black or whatever, people don't really know who they are. And that is, that to me, that's the tragedy of, of this, of, of race in general, is that it was a system that was created to keep people disconnected. It was not a system that was created to to bring about more connection. It was actually created to enhance fragmentation. You know, Dr. King talked about race as a racism as a spiritual disease. And if you look at it the same way, like maybe a cancer, right, or some autoimmune condition where the self is turning in on the self, that's ultimately what racism is. It's like we're turning in on ourselves. We're literally one species, and we're believing that we're we're not. And so the fragmentation is through the hierarchy, because on some level, there's this internal, like we internalize the meaning of race. And I think the thing about whiteness is because whiteness sits at the top of the racial hierarchy. White people internalize white supremacy. They internalize they're better than even though they won't ever say that, and it seems absurd to most white people to think that they might hold these thoughts, but we see it play out every day. Yes, it's like so unconscious, and then it's so uncomfortable to make it conscious. Yeah. And and to realize like the feeling of entitlement 
that it that is justified by the feeling of superiority. Yeah. And I think, yeah. So maybe that helps me because I'm still, and part of me is still sitting here thinking, why is examining whiteness so threatening? Like, why is it? Why is it threatening? And um, and I think what you just said takes me back because it's really saying there is no basis for the consolidation of power that you have. I think you just said it beautifully. And I also think we have this this myth of um, that we, we have we, we live in a culture that um, is based on our on our merits, the things that we've earned. Right. And so whiteness sort of flies in the face of our sort of collective cultural identity. Right. As a, as as a country. Right. We believe that people earn what they get. And if you're struggling, it's just because you didn't work hard enough. So once you start bringing in whiteness and you you start talking about, yeah, there are a whole bunch of unearned privileges that you get just by way of being white. It makes people uncomfortable because it, it also then starts to question a deeper layer of identity around our, our nation, our nationality, right? Our sort of n- cultural value system. It's, it's, a, it's a loss. It's a real loss. Like I think about as a Canadian here, you know, like during presidential elections, mm-hmm. and I listen to every candidate, regardless of party, sort of talking about, we are the number one best country in the world. They sort of need to affirm that kind of thing. And I think, and, and to really own racism, to really look at how profoundly racism is woven into the whole fabric of this country mm. um, undermines that assertion so deeply. It's hard to, it, it it's is. Hard to look at it because the, the national pride is something people feel so deeply about Absolutely. here. Absolutely. And so when you bring in conversations about white privilege... And then if you start to peel the layer back, because, again, even the concept of privilege, it sounds so benign, but that privilege is born of violence, right? That privilege is born of oppression. And so it's not a benign thing to have privilege. If you have this privilege, it's because someone else is being oppressed. Like the flip side of privilege is oppression. That's how they exist. And so that that's very uncomfortable. And so when you and I'm saying uncomfortable is um is putting it lightly, I have to imagine. Right. When you say privilege is really rooted in violence, it's like whoosh, all mm-hmm. of a sudden the conversation isn't quite so fun. No. I want to come back to your experience in Maine because mm. you've been here now almost two years. Yeah. And you began by telling me that, uh, you know, a story about really overt racism. Mm. But I know that so much of the way that racism expresses itself today, at least interpersonally, is mm-hmm. in much more kind of subtle... Mm. Um, what, what are ca- often called microaggressions. Yep. And tell me a little bit about how you've experienced that in your time here in Maine. So, again, when I moved to Maine, I was moving here um, fairly recent after the uh, murder of my two younger brothers. And on the eve of the anniversary of their murders in March um, of 2013, um, someone set our building on fire that we were living in on One Joy Hill. And uh, my cat died in the fire. And, but all the pets that lived in the building died. So the neighbor's pets, our cats. Um, and so I remember after my brothers died, I um, or were murdered. I'm trying to, because sometimes I think when I say they died, it's because I don't want to deal with the gravity of that someone took their life. Um, 
I had a sense of community when I was living in Boston. And so I felt like a lot of people surrounded me. And um, it was there were people across lines of of quote unquote race and gender that really held me. And I felt affirmed in a lot of ways. But when I was in Maine, like I didn't have I didn't have a sense of community. My experience of, of first going into like starting the workforce here in Maine was of not being invited to events that were planned um, amongst my coworkers or um, not being invited to participate in conversations or I would sit down at the conference table and no one would sit next to me or no one just come up and talk to me. It was just very, it was a very different experience and, and, and coming off of the trauma of a fire and not feeling held um, or feeling like there was a sense of community. In fact, um, which is so weird because we lived right across the street from a fire station. I know. <laughs> we lived right across. We lived right across the street from a fire station. Um, but afterward, like, because of the person that set the fire. M- what do you know about that? How, wh- why did that happen? So someone walked in our building um, and they went up to the third floor, which was the, the folks who actually owned the building. Um, and they just walked in their house because they left their door. They usually leave their doors unlocked. And I think prior to me moving in with my partner, he left the doors unlocked as well. Um, I think there was just this sense of you can do that. Um, and so this person walked into their apartment and was demanding food and water. The person's clearly like inebriated and, um, and so our neighbors gave him the food and the water and then asked him to leave. And then he, he wouldn't leave. And so he had to push him out of the door. And then finally he pushed him out of the door. He called the police. But by the time that happened, he had gone down to the second floor where we lived and went into our storage closet and just set it on fire. And yeah, the person who did this um, was from Guatemala, from what I understand. I didn't go to the trial. And I think part of the reason I didn't go to the trial is that there was this sort of um, racist response to the fire. Um, like literally, um, you know. Because the arsonist was a man Because of color? the arsonist was a man of color. It oh. was that same damn immigrants or worse. You know, there's some things that I just don't want to say because I... Mm-hmm. Um, right. It contributes to a culture. Of yeah. And I don't like how it feels in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, and so I felt very much like, well, I'm a person of color and my cat died. You know what I mean? Like this is. So I didn't feel held at all. And I actually felt really tra- like I felt like the, the event was so traumatic and Probably in ways, I feel like I've struggled more with talking about the fire than I have with talking about my brothers. And I really think it's because after my brothers, I felt like there was a sort of communal response in terms of um, support. And around the fire, I think part of the reason that support didn't happen is because there was there was all this sort of racist air around the around the fire and who set the fire Um and then I was dealing with these microaggressions at work that I couldn't necessarily name. I just knew that I wasn't a part of of, of the group, right? Um, mm-hmm. like, so there's this feeling like you're not belonging. Yeah. And then you have this traumatic thing happen, right? You have this fire. Um, so I feel like I've, yeah. Hmm. And it just continued when I 
went to the University of uh, New England. You know, like I, I remember like walking into a class and, you know, like the whole class is white. They're not, you know, there are no people of color. I'm the only person of color. And typically, like I'm a super social person. It's just kind of how I how I am. And there was no reception for that level of, and again, it was, I would have these experiences where I would go into seminar and then I would look around and, you know, the tables are full, but then there are these two empty spots next to me, you know, like this sort of, and I'm like, what is this about? Like, do I stink? <laughs> she smells her armpits. Yeah. So I'm like, is it, do I stink? Like, I don't know, but it's, you know, the same sort of thing. No one talks to you or, or talks to me and, um. Yeah, it was it was just a very isolating experience. Or then I think that then I started having these panic attacks at a certain point. Um, uh, it was my second semester at the University of New England. I started having panic attacks. And I remember it was the first day of class of one of my um, one of my seminars. And I was sitting in class and a student made this comment so one student was going to visit some place in California, and this student said to the other one, don't go to that place because it's so ghetto. And um, I remember hearing that, and I was, I don't know why I took that inside of myself. And I, you know, maybe because, like, I grew up in the, in a ghetto. I love people who live in ghettos. Like, the you don't know anything about the get. So there are all these ways in which I was internalizing. But it, you know, when you say don't go to that place because it's so ghetto, you're basically saying don't go there because poor people live there and probably black people or brown people live there. Don't go there. And it's and it's bad. And it's bad, right? Yeah. There's the association. Um, and I, we were, we went on break for during that class, and I just didn't go back to class. And when it was time for my next class. The next time for that class to meet, I had a full-blown panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was, And I was like, what's going on? And it was because that wasn't my first experience of like a microaggression. Like it had just been cumulative. Um, this My first semester in my field placement in Lewiston, I knew nothing about the racial history of Lewiston, but it was my first time in life being called an and so I go to my practice class because I was like, how do I go and work with clients after being called a d-? And I literally shared this with my class. And the uh, advice that I got was to compartmentalize it and show up and be professional. I was like, you don't get this, you know? Um, so meanwhile, your whole body is like reverberating yes. in shock and like overwhelmed. And I'm being told to compartmentalize and be show up as a professional. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the response to this. That's a, and I even feel like that was um, a microaggressive like, comment, right? Oh, oh, the comment from your supervisor. Yes. Yes, right. Yeah. Microaggressive, yes, and born of like just so completely not getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are that the underlying message is that you should be able to handle that, Right. Like that's, if you're a professional, if you're a professional and uh, part of what and this may have not been the intention of the people, because I bought this to the classroom. Um, and so the people who shared um, their thoughts, I don't think that they came from a necessarily um, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I hate that when I can't think of my words. Um, I also say often, I think my brain is still healing from trauma. And I say, I say it often because my memory has not been the same since the fire. And for me, the fire and the panic attacks around racism, they are together like this. Um, and so I feel like my brain has not fully healed. Um, and so I forget a lot of stuff lately. You know, it's really, really, really interesting how this stuff works. Um, but I don't think that people's suggestions or whatever it is that they were sharing with me, were it, like it was coming from a malicious place. Um, I just really think that there was a sense that you're black. Get over it. Like, at least this is how I was interpreting it, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was being couched in this language around professionalism. There's so many experiences. I had the you're pretty for a black girl thing happen here in Maine, too. You know, I've had that happen here. It's just, yeah. So it's unrelenting. It is. It is. It is. And I think I, part of my theory around, because I experienced microaggressions when I, was in, when I lived in Iowa, but I didn't have panic attacks. Like, I didn't have this sort of response. And I think the difference is... I had access to Chicago. It was like two and a half hours away. And so I could drive and be with people of color. <laughs> I also had family in Chicago. So I literally was in Chicago like every weekend when I lived there. So you had a lifeline. I did. I don't have that here. Um, I don't have that in Maine. I know that part of your research is on what we call post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And you've been describing how trauma, you know, trauma literally affects our brain. It affects mm -hmm. our nervous system. It goes our whole nervous system is so in shock from something, such a blow, and, mm. and then so many cumulative smaller blows, mm -hmm. you know, in this kind of unrelenting fashion. Um, what is post-traumatic growth, and how mm. are you studying that in terms of, of race? So I'm just going to speak about my own life, um, because I think sometimes I w researchers don't always say this, but I think we research areas that are connected to our own life and our own growth. Um, and sometimes it just seems safer to do it with other people, but it's really about us on some level. Um, <clears throat> so I think post-traumatic growth, it, it ha it's this moment when there's a shift from um, being completely defined by the traumatic event and finding a way to shift the energy of it to something that's growth fostering and is about creating and has the air of connection, creating connection. And so what I did after a lot of, I spent the summer break like doing lots of therapy um, and re, just really reconnecting. And I always say it's hard to talk about spirituality sometimes because I think it just gets conflated with religiosity so often. And yet for me, it's not about religiosity at all. I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a part of any religion. I don't even believe in, some would say I'm probably atheist. Yet I'm, like, I think of myself as super spiritual. And for me, that means remembering that we all literally come from the same source. This is, can be straight physics, but for me, physics is spiritual, right? Like, I find it um, incredibly moving and awe-inspiring to think that we all just come from this bang of a moment or 
you know, that literally the same atoms that are moving through you are the ones that are moving through me. That to me is just for me, it's spiritual. Um, And so really like grounding myself in that. I don't know. I came back this semester really determined to make something to make a shift, to make a change, because otherwise I'm just swallowing Right. I'm swallowing the disrespect. I'm swallowing the disregard to my humanity. I'm swallowing that. And that doesn't work for me. Um, and it doesn't work for me to be silent either. I, I really tried it. It does not work for me. It makes me sick, like literally, physically, it makes me sick. Um, so I really did some work around forming this microaggression committee, anti-microaggression committee. Um, Actually, a couple students that I did a a project with, um, they were really instrumental in creating um, this microaggression committee within the School of Social Work. Um, And we put on this event recently, which was the Mosquito in the Room event, which was a way to create storytelling around, um, around microaggressions that I've So for me, that was a moment of post-traumatic growth, right? It's like taking this experience and shedding light on not just the experience, but the opportunity for growth and learning. And for me, again, like that is what post-traumatic growth looks like for me. And yet I'm still making sense of it all. Okay, so let me say that back to you. So you're saying what (laughs) post-traumatic growth is for you is the opportunity to take to take a really painful experience and turn it into an opportunity for learning and Mm -hmm. and growth Mm -hmm. and connection. And connection. Yeah. Yeah. So another experience of post-traumatic growth for me um, is when I was invited to teach the, um, it's called HIPSE, Human Behavior, no, HBSE, Human Behavior and Social Environment, but we call it HIPSE. Um, And it's the class where we cover oppression and identity and social justice and all that stuff. Um, And so I was invited to come in and teach the, the section on racism Um, and had I still been operating from the same traumatized self, same wounded in the same way, the wound is still there. It's just, it's moving in a different direction. Um, but had I not started to do some, some healing and growing around this wound that is the result ultimately of racism, I would not have been able to go into that class because the class both classes, well, the second class, there were a few people of color, but the first class, there were no people of color. There was actually one woman who was a woman of color, but you couldn't tell just from looking. It's the fallacy of race once again. We think we know something about somebody just by looking. Um, but in each class, students, white identified students would say to me, I, I really want to ask this question, but I'm so afraid of, of saying something that would offend you. And in both classes, what I said to them was that I'm not offendable. And the reason is, is because I know who I am. I know that there's a social construct and I know who I am. Yes, we all exist in these these constructs, but ultimately I know who I am and who I am is not offendable. And for me, that was a moment of reclaiming not just my humanity, but reclaiming their humanity as well, because when you think you can offend someone, I think it's because you've lost some part of your own humanity, that you would think you're so separate from another person, that you asking a question about the human experience could be offendable. 
And so, okay, so, so let me push yeah. back a sec. Cause yeah, I, push back. Cause, because what is it, so I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions. One is, what does it mean that you're not offendable? Because someone can ask a question that is downright thoughtless and demeaning. And how come that wouldn't offend you? Because I know who I am. I keep going back to I that. No, tell me what that means. <laughs> so again, I could take it. It could. I can explain it in terms of physics, or I can. Oh, I can play, explain it in terms of anthropology, right? We all trace our ancestry back to East Africa. Every modern Homo sapien sapien, we're all African. We all come from East Africa. Race is a myth. It's a myth. I know who I am. I am not the myth. The myth doesn't define me anymore. Uh-huh. Okay, I know I start who I to am. get it. I yeah. start to get it. Yeah. And you know that we're all connected. Yes. And I know ultimately we're all made of the same stuff. We all come from the same source, whether you take that in terms of physics or you take that in terms of anthropology, you take it in terms of human history. Ultimately, we all descend from the same place. And so what, so having, you know, expressed their fear, what were their actual questions? People really wanted to say that racism didn't exist, right? Um, they're people who really hold on to the and even gave me pushback when I said that, you know, race is a social construct. And they're like, well, you know, you're here talking about racism. So if race isn't real, then why are you here talking about racism? A racism is real. Yes. That's the connection to make. Right. Like, yeah, we we all deal with this crappy construct. Right. We all deal with this crappy construct of race. And racism is 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 the natural sort of like fallout of a racial hierarchy. When you have a racial hierarchy, you're going to have racism. And so even though the hierarchy is not real, it's an illusion, the result of it isn't. And if we want to understand how these disparities manifest themselves, we really have to look at the impact of racism on the human person. And we can talk about that. So I think a lot of the questions that I got were just these questions where people really wanted to defend are, are being denial that racism is real and that it that it differentially impacts people. So, so I want to come back to this idea that whiteness needs to stay unexamined in order to keep the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever had the experience? I mean, you teach about racism sometimes. Have you ever had the experience of trying to help someone get their power, get their privilege, mm. get them to examine it, and um, how that went. Yes, I guess is the short answer. Yes, I've, I've had that experience. Um, and there are some people where, I mean, you give them some information and it takes some time for them to process it. And then there are people who are just not ready to receive it. And I don't, I also feel like as a person of color, like it's not my job to like get white people to get it. I think white people who really see themselves as allies and who really get the constructedness of race and even the constructedness of whiteness. And normally, if I have the opportunity to work with a colleague, I usually choose a, a white identified colleague who really identifies as an ally and we work together um, because I think there's only so much I can do. And then there's, it's not my job ultimately. Do you mean like it's not... Um it's not your burden, like you, you have to do your own work. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's not my burden. And I feel like for so long, people of color have carried that burden. But the truth is, racism is not a problem for people of color. 
right? Like many of us, we get it. R- racism is really the work of white identified people. Um, and yeah. so I always know that my work will only go so far and the people when I'm working by myself, the, there will be people who get it. And that's great. And they'll they'll take up this journey because it's it's a journey because everywhere I think people are called to go to sleep around racism and around whiteness. Right. Everything is to lull you to sleep. And so to remain awake and to remain conscious takes work for a person who is white identified. And it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. And I know what my part of that work is. And then I know when to walk away. So, Natasha, I always like to end the show with resources. I wonder if there's like maybe a couple of books that you would recommend that you think are really on about this topic. So, Fendika, again, because I think she sets it up and frames it. So, the Fendika book um, is um, Learning to be White, which really shows like whiteness as a construct. Um, and then I would really recommend almost anything by Tim Wise, but Dear White America, I think, is a really good book. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you again so much, Natasha. You're welcome. It's been very inspiring and powerful to talk to you. I really appreciate you being my guest. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend because you know they need to hear it, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get every week an email with a link to that week's show. You can also download any of the previous podcasts. Um, You can make a comment, request a new show, Email me. I'd love to hear feedback from you about this show. Um, you can also download the show to your smartphone so you can listen to it during your commute. You can listen to us on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.